Caution. The contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 46 of the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. Now, in our last episode, we took a tour to romantic France. And now we're going to another part of Europe, Hungary, where the great composer Franz Liszt was born in 1811. And like oh so many before and after him, Liszt's father first taught him music. His father was employed in the Esterhazy court, which was a hub of society and culture during the time. Liszt's first love was the piano, and he definitely also tried his hand at composition beginning at an early age. He made his official performance debut when he was only nine years old, and the community loved it. And because of this, money was actually raised to send him off for further piano training with Carl Czerny, who had been one of Beethoven's students, and also composition with Antonio Salieri in Vienna. So as a little aside here, it seems that everyone has heard about young Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart being a child prodigy, but as you've probably gathered by listening to our many episodes, quite a few of the great composers started out young as superstars. Now there could be many reasons for this. Most of their fathers seemed to be musicians as well, so it was easy to take lessons and, quote, get good quick. Or maybe their fathers forced them into being good in an effort to make a bunch of little copycat Mozarts. Or perhaps there was just more of a place for young musicians to be seen publicly. Going to concerts was one of the few activities people really had back then, so it would have only been a little trouble to get a child on the program. Nowadays, not as many people go to concerts, and certainly the general public isn't spending time going to children's piano recitals alongside the child's proud parents. Liszt was born in Hungary and he did nourish some nationalism for his home nation, with suggested listening being his Hungarian rhapsodies. (laughs) But he actually lived in many places throughout Europe. Obviously, he was in Austria for a while during his youthful studies, and then in 1823 his family moved to Paris. Liszt was not allowed to join the Paris Conservatory like many of his romantic colleagues, but he did train with many musical masters in the city. Upon his concert debut, he was immediately a hit with the Parisians. However, in 1826, Liszt's father passed away. This was really a traumatic event for the then 15-year-old. His father had tirelessly sought out opportunities for him and encouraged his musical growth, and now the striving force was gone. Apparently, for a time, Liszt stopped working on his music altogether, and rather began reading a whole lot of good books from fantasy to religion. Now, luckily for him, he was living in the Romantic period, so all of these stories he was stuffing into his head would eventually come back out in the form of grand programmatic works. By 1833, Liszt's career really began to take off. He has been described as, quote, the world's first rock star, and he definitely deserved that title at this point in his career. As a romantic artist, he had some wild ideas about the direction of music, and not just the sound, but also the performance. So when you think of a piano concert now, you see the pianist walk onto the stage majestically and sit at the piano with no music as they have memorized it, and then they receive a standing ovation for a job well done. 
Now apparently this concert format was pioneered by Liszt. He was dramatic and charismatic and he really wanted his concerts to be more than just a listening opportunity. And luckily, he was brilliant at the piano, so this stunt worked. But this also makes Liszt seem shallow and vain, although he really, he wasn't. He had a very kind nature, and many of the concerts he put on donated the proceeds to various charities. However, he was not loved by everybody. We've been going pretty hard with the programmatic romantics lately. But recall there's a more abstract side to romanticism that was championed by Brahms. Needless to say, Brahms and Liszt did not like each other, and it didn't help matters when Brahms wrote a scathing manifesto against Liszt's ideals and ideas. Liszt didn't really take this personally, though. He was constantly trying to figure out what the next new thing would be, and in the end this actually led him down a completely unexpected path. In 1863, after a series of deaths of friends, children, and relatives, Liszt became reclusive, going to live in a Roman monastery. He continued to compose during this time, but with a simpler style as compared to his rock star show-off years. Eventually, he would also help found the Royal National Hungarian Academy of Music in an effort to promote music education in his home nation. And near the end of his life, he did more traveling around Europe. During one of his trips, he was to see the opera performances from his old friend Richard Wagner. Of course, these two were buddies. <laughs> of course. With being programmatic romantics and all. However, he had been ill, and this adventure turned his illness into pneumonia and led to his death in Bayreuth, Germany in 1886. So now let's look at one of Liszt's most famous works, the Mephisto Waltz Number no. 1 for piano. So like many composers before and after him, Franz Liszt was taken in by the old story of Faust. This Mephisto, or Mephistopheles, Waltz Number no. 1 is part of a set of four waltzes that tell the tale of Faust, though not Goethe's version, but rather an earlier version written by Nicolas Lenau. This first waltz is subtitled The Dance in the Village Inn, so you can bet it's going to be upbeat and folksy. This waltz was written in 1859, which recall this is the period when Liszt's life was sort of falling into pieces around him before he left for the monastery. So we'll be listening to it today in the form of a piano solo, but it was also orchestrated and also arranged for piano duet. So let's listen to some of this music. First, we'll talk about that folksy element that Liszt would want to create based on the village in scene. We can imagine Mephisto and Faust riding into town on galloping horses in the programmatic introduction until they come up to the village inn where a party is brewing. to investigate and hear this lilting tune that is full of rich harmony and grace notes. And Mephisto joins in with his devilish violin, 
as alluded to in this piano version, with an added higher octave to the melody. Let's talk about some of the actual mechanics of Liszt's writing. There are several instances in the music where the audience hears a quick cutoff in the music followed by a brief silence. And while the audience might interpret that as some sort of artistic choice for dramatic effect, these pauses are actually written into the music in a very measured way as Liszt has written in certain numbers of actually completely silent measures. Generally, these measures are before a transition, but what's interesting is that they range from just one measure to four whole measures, so it's not an even amount of time each time. Now on top of that, Liszt does sometimes just write in a fermata, thus actually giving the performer some artistic leeway. And, curiously, Liszt has ended the piece with a single measure of rest with a fermata over it, as though to ask the performer to be completely silent forever. But why would Liszt do such a thing? Well, my theory is that it draws on Liszt's interest in religion. Back in the Baroque cantatas and other religious choral works, Whenever there was a devil character, they never got to sing, and that is because it represented that the devil was unable to do something as heavenly as making music. So perhaps these little silences are programmatically meant to represent Mephisto egging on Faust during this party. Or maybe Liszt knew it would be dramatic and just wanted to help our future performers carry on his mission to make concerts exciting. Liszt has written a very dolce and legato middle section for this piece. Compared to the folksy dance at the beginning, this is a much more gentle waltz. However, we'll draw your attention toward the end of this calmer section, when Liszt repeats this general idea five times. The first two repetitions are essentially the same. But then he does some really elegant sequencing, raising the line up about a third at a time. But what makes this sequence so nice is that the florid ending to it masks the fact that we are raising in pitch. to some sequencing that we might hear in Baroque fugues, for example, that might only sequence one simple measure motif. And so, though both the Baroque and the Romantic composers utilize the same transition and tension-building technique, we can definitely see how the Romantics, and particularly Liszt in this example, have developed and expanded the possibilities of what a sequence could really be. And finally, let's look at the razzle-dazzle that made Liszt the rock star he was. Then and now, everyone is awestruck at flourishes, and Liszt was the king of the flourish. 
What makes Liszt's flourishes so nice, though, is the fact that they are meant to actually be in the background for the most part. For example, though we hear the up and down of the rushing notes in this passage, we also clearly still hear the melody being the main idea in the left-hand notes. And he also knows how to use flourishes wisely, rather than just constantly rushing up and down the keyboard for the whole piece. Liszt has provided us a very nice palate cleanser right after those fireworks. In this simple melody, there are very, very few chords played, so basically we're only hearing one expressive note at a time. And this kind of contrast was captivating for Liszt's audiences. And that has primed us for the final flourish, which is really just an expansion on tonic, perhaps inspired by Beethoven, who, recall, was essentially his grandfather teacher. So what a great piece, full of fun, showy yet artfully crafted. This type of music was really Liszt's ideal for the era. He got to make musical improvements and innovations and be smart about his music, and he was so devoted to its meaning. But at the same time, even if the lay people didn't really understand the high art, they still got a good show. And speaking of a good show, thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. If you enjoy what we are showing off, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or Google Play and telling a friend about the fun that we have on air. So for the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, I'm Allison. And I'm Asa. Thank you so much for listening. List's Mephisto Waltz Number 1 was performed by Carmelo Mantione. You can find The Coffee House on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you download podcasts. We would also appreciate a like and a share of our Facebook page. You can email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.